0: Let's get started. So we're all here because we're building something. We may be building a company, or a family, or a tolerance for barbecue and beer on 6th Street. But we're here for something. And in this process, we're going to face roadblocks. We're going to face challenges. And the question is, how do we respond to those challenges? We have three main choices. The first is, we can give up. We can take our ball and go home and say, I'm done. The second is we can decide this is something that I have to endure and get through to get to the other side, to get to what's good or what I want. And the third choice is we can recognize that this is the greatest opportunity for growth and learning and change. And that was my experience. The best parts of myself have come from the most challenging and the most difficult things I've gone through. So I think as we look at adversity, the attitude we take towards adversity really determines where we end up. And what our experience is. All right, we're working on the technology here. So, for this particular conference, I had to ask why I'm here. I run a nonprofit focused on prison reentry. I talk on social media about prison, prison reform, and trauma. And then I thought about it. If I were to describe people crammed into a small space, sweaty and tired, living on ramen noodles and desperation, I could be describing prison, but I could also be describing a tech startup. So maybe we're a little more alike than we thought. So I want to talk a little bit about my nonprofit. And I want to talk about this shirt. So this shirt and the design was made by artists at the juvenile detention center in Charlottesville, Virginia. And their art teacher and the local artist wanted to give them an outlet for their creativity and for their passion. And the kids said, why? Like, we don't care. Nobody's going to see our art. Why are we going to make things that nobody's ever going to see? And their answer was to print up these shirts and print up flyers and have them posted around Charlottesville so that when their family goes to a business or to a friend's home, they see that in the front door. And then when they talk to their loved one on the phone, they say, hey, I saw your art. That's amazing. Do you know whose house it's in? Do you know what business is showing your art in the front? And all of a sudden, the kids felt a sense of hope. So I wanted to take that further. I wanted to get these printed out, Uh, and originally it was going to be stickers, I wanted to have a bunch of stickers that people could take back home and put on the Great Wall of China or the Golden Gate Bridge or the Statue of Liberty so these kids could say, oh my god, like my art, it went somewhere, it went around the world. And Austin doesn't print stickers for some reason, I think it's an eco issue. But so, we have some posters and we have some shirts, and if you're interested, I can give you one when you leave, if we have enough. Um, And there's a hashtag, and if you wouldn't mind posting a picture from wherever you're from and letting these kids know that their art can reach long distances. Because that's the power of a story to change lives. It's the power of a story to change the life of that kid who says, wait a minute, Like I can reach around the world. I can do something that's going to impact more than just me or my friend or my family. I can reach something across the world. It's also the power of a story to impact the people who now see artists and kids rather than juvenile delinquents. And if we want them to succeed, It's going to be a lot easier to succeed as an artist than it is as a juvenile delinquent. So a little bit about how I ended up here. I always felt out of place. As a kid, I always felt like everyone knew something that I didn't know, that there was some secret. And if I could only figure it out, I would be able to be cool, or I would be able to be fitting in, or I'd be okay, and I felt like everybody knew it but me, so I was really unhappy from a very early age. I was a child of two addicts and alcoholics who got sober when I was young, but as my father liked to say, if you have a drunk horse thief and you take away the alcohol, you still have a horse thief. So the issue was those behaviors didn't all change just because the substance was removed, and I grew up in a household that was interesting, to say the least. Uh, And my father had moved to El Salvador to lead the revolution, and my mother was an attorney, and it was a very colorful place. But it definitely shaped me in some interesting ways. My parents got divorced when I was seven, and it brought out the absolute worst in both of them. And it changed me, because I felt like I was the one who had to be responsible. I was the one who had to get in between all the fights and stop all the chaos, and I forgot how to take care of myself. But I was really good at taking care of everybody else. So as I was trying to figure things out, I didn't feel like I deserved to have the time spent on me. So every time I ran into something that was difficult or was going to take time, I gave up. So I loved baseball. But you know, when you're playing t-ball, if you can stay on the field and not run into the stands, like you're an amazing player. Once it took practice, once I had to swing a thousand times and miss just to hit once, I stopped doing it because I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think I deserved the time and the attention, and I didn't know how to learn. I loved karate. And I was passionate about it, and I used to watch the movies, and I was so excited. And then the first time I went to the adult black belt class and somebody kicked me across the room, I was like, ah, this is not for me. I'm done. (laughs) Um, Because it was hard, and it was uncomfortable, and I didn't like that. I thought that we weren't supposed to do difficult things. I thought that we're supposed to feel good, and if we don't feel good, something's wrong, and we should do something to make ourselves feel better. We should hide behind the couch at five years old and eat enough Oreos that we get this dopamine rush, and all of a sudden, everything's okay. And that was the behavior that I had modeled to me. And that was how I learned. So, the third thing that I really loved as a kid was Aerosmith. And I remember in third grade we had a talent show. And I was so excited because I thought everybody loved Aerosmith. I couldn't imagine how you didn't. So I got one of my mom's wigs and I went up on stage and I lip synced at the talent show and I was expecting thunderous applause and, and nobody cared. And so I never did it again and I haven't talked about it again until now. Because again, I thought it meant something was wrong. I thought something was wrong with my choice that other people didn't cheer. I didn't know how to be uncomfortable and I didn't know how to do difficult things and that was my biggest problem in life. I was a great student until 8th grade because school was easy for me. So I always got good grades. I always did above and beyond because it was the only thing I had to do. I lived in the country by myself. The closest friend was two miles away, and that's a long way on a bike, which I would do. But then I would sit at home, and the only thing that I had to do was schoolwork. And I thought, that's just what you did. Plus, it makes my parents happy, so. Then all of a sudden in eighth grade, I got really angry, because after focusing on everybody else and not taking care of myself, I was angry at my parents, I was angry at my teachers, I was angry at my, I was just angry at the world, and I stopped caring. So for the first time, rather than getting perfects on all my exams and all my homework, I failed two classes. And I didn't even know why, but I knew, okay, well, I have to keep my parents kind of happy, so I have to go to summer school. And the only reason I passed those two classes in summer school was twofold. The first was that I had nothing else to do, like literally nothing. And the second was that my Spanish teacher was straight out of college, and she was gorgeous, and she said, you can talk about anything you want as long as you talk about it in Spanish. So I learned Spanish really well. Then I went on to high school. I tried soccer. And I was slower than everybody on the team. And I never got picked to take penalty kicks. And I wasn't very good, so I quit, because I thought this isn't for me. And I don't know why, but I loved wrestling. Wrestling was the first time I learned how to do something hard. Because even when I was getting slammed on my back or pinned or losing, I felt some sense of joy, like I'm here, I'm present. And I had never felt that before, because I realized that was the first thing that I really did for me. And So that was where I began to learn to do difficult things. Fortunately, I didn't learn quite well enough. So, are we on the right one? In 2002, I graduated from high school. I was taking a year off before college. I was going to explore the world. And then I found cocaine. And I went from coasting to plummeting. And in the world, you have feather people and you have brick people. You have some people who, at the first sign of discomfort, they change their behavior. They're like, hey, I don't like this. I'm going to do something different. Somehow I was so obstinate that I found something that felt good. And despite all the consequences, I was like, I'm going to keep doing that. Like, I'm going to wait for the break to hit me on the head. And it did. If you've never done cocaine and felt that withdrawal, and I hope you haven't, it feels like you're drowning. It literally feels like if you do not get that, it is not air in your lungs, you're going to die. that allowed me to fail to meet my standards faster than I could lower them. And the problem with that is, when we lower our standards slowly, we can lie to ourselves, right? We can say, oh, well, it's not so bad. Like, that's just my standard, I'm right here. But when we plummet off that cliff, there is so much shame, there is so much self-loathing, and there is so much self-hatred that it compounds all the issues that were there to begin with. So, one of my friends said, hey, I've got a way we can get money. I used to work for this family, and they're bad people. They only hire undocumented immigrants, and they steal all their money. So if we steal from them, they're not really bad people. We're good people. We're like Robin Hood. And so we did. And we were able to lie to ourselves, something patently untrue, because in that moment, it allowed us to justify our actions. Then about a week later, there was a conflict. These two guys had stolen a gun and given it to somebody else. And one of the other things about drugs, or about cocaine, is I thought everybody was out to get me. I thought I was in danger and I needed some way to be safe and be strong. And When somebody offered me a gun, I felt safe and strong. So when those two guys came back and said, we need our gun back, I said, you can't take my safety. You can't take my strength. I already felt threatened. The next night, they went to my buddy's house where his pregnant girlfriend was and said, hey, you need to bring us that gun or else. Or you can bring us coke or you can bring us money, which let me know it wasn't really about the gun. And in my mind, you're terrorizing a pregnant woman. Like That's not acceptable. So I'm going to be the hero. I'm full of cocaine and bravado. and. So I threatened them, and they threatened me, and then I agreed to meet them. Finally, there was this flash. Like, hey, this isn't a good idea. I probably shouldn't be here. Like, something bad is going to happen, so I left. And they chased me. And in that moment, every kid who had ever picked on me, every moment of self-loathing, I was so angry, because I was, I was trying to do the right thing. How dare you chase me? And so I was angry, and I was scared, and when the passenger reached around behind him to grab something, I was convinced he was reaching for a gun, and I shot my own. And it's not like in the movies where people like, take aim and have cool catch lines. Um, it's terrifying. I was screaming, I had tears streaming out of my eyes, and I was deaf from the gunshots. And I'm really lucky that they didn't die, because it wasn't my choice or my action that kept them alive. It was sheer luck. The next day, I hadn't slept in days before that, I passed out and heard that the police were outside, freaked out in that feral way, ran up the steps of the duplex, ran out right into the barrel of a gun. When you look at a gun, you don't realize it gets really, really big. And the guy said, I will shoot you dead, boy. And I remember kind of wishing he would, because at least then I wouldn't have to explain to my parents. I wouldn't have to deal with any of the consequences I'd been running for, for months and months and months. So I was arrested, I was on the front page, and I had to make that call to my parents, which was the lowest moment, because I had to admit... I've been a failure all along. I really am a failure. So every time we build something, it starts with a good idea. The advantage I had was that I had nothing. I had ruined my life, I had caused harm, I was at the lowest I could possibly be, so there was nowhere to go but up. I was in jail, awaiting trial and going to prison and never knowing if I was going home. So literally anything from that point is up. And being able to start fresh meant I had an open mind. And I was really grateful that I had people who could encourage me. But being in jail, and then later being in prison, I heard it described as like middle school with more knives. That's a really good description. Because it's the same anxiety and backbiting and drama, but with more knives. Um, And it was not an ideal place to change, but thankfully it was. So I went into the courtroom. I pleaded guilty to all the charges I committed. And the sentencing guidelines were from 8 to 13 years the Commonwealth Attorney, or the District Attorney, if you're from another state, made a motion. They modified the guidelines to 10 to 16 years. My lawyer was like, look, let's just not make an issue. Let's just take this. So the judge read out the sentence, and he read out, you know, five years for this, five suspended, 10 years for this, five suspended, went down the line, and at the end, my lawyer said, Your Honor, like, how much time is that? And I had done the math in my head, but the judge said, I don't know, Asked the court reporter. The court reporter had to read it all back, and he had sentenced me to 138 years, with 106 suspended. So an active sentence of 32 years in prison or twice the high point of the sentencing guidelines. And in that moment, I had two reactions. One was that my deepest fear had been validated. I knew I was worthless. I knew I was irredeemable. And he just proved it. He just showed me my deepest fear is true. On the other hand, there was this anger, like I was only supposed to get 10 years, like this isn't fair, this isn't right, but also, I'm gonna prove him wrong. Like, I'm gonna find some way to prove him wrong. And that deepened as I went back, and I sat in a cell, and I cried, and I screamed, and went through that adaptation. All right. Yeah. So, is this the wrong one? I'm sorry. So the main difference, and the reason this wasn't my end, was that I had support and opportunities that other people didn't have. Um, I remember being in the jail, and every time they would do mail call, everybody would line up. And I would always get mail, so I didn't have to line up. Other people would wait day after day and never get anything. It wasn't right. It wasn't fair. My mother enrolled me in college while I was in the jail before I even pleaded guilty. So I was able to get an education while others sat around and languished, had nothing to do. In prison, I was able to get a college degree. I was able to study and read all the books I wanted and meditate and exercise and make this meaningful experience while other people spent 16 hours a day in the kitchen just to have their basic needs met, to buy their soap and buy their toothpaste. So what I saw was this horrible inequity and the realization that I am where I am not just because of my choices and actions but because I had people who believed in me and supported me and lifted me up when I couldn't do it myself. So one of my favorite stories from that, I had a, a friend, probably my oldest friend, that we, we haven't talked to each other in a while. She gave me hope in a way that was symbolic, almost. So I remember being complaining about how bad the food was. It's really bland. And so she packaged up all these little spices and sent them into me. And you don't send a bunch of little bags of green things to a jail. <laughs> and then I complained about the cell. I said, it's so stark, and there's no color, and there's no anything. So she cut out a hundred pictures of bunny rabbits from magazines and newspapers. And I got this massive envelope full of bunny rabbits. And I remember crying, like just streaming tears because there was something about that that was so heartfelt and so real that it touched me. And that was what allowed me to keep going. And most people didn't have that. So once we start building with our idea, we have to make a plan. I had to figure out who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. I had this blank slate. And thankfully I had people who believed in me and they gave me ideas and they let me know, but it took that acceptance, that blank slate acceptance, that radical acceptance, which by the way, if you've never read it, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock is one of my favorite books of all time. It speaks to me in a way that I don't know how to describe. So starting from nothing, cool, but it's not like a movie. It's not like, oh, there's this montage and everything's better and, no, it was daily steps because what i learned early on was we're not the one thing we do we're those daily habits you now aristotle said excellence is not an act but a habit so who we are is the habits we do every day the things we do every day the person we are every day and so initially i was shaped by my environment i was a thermometer i did what everybody else did i did what everybody else thought was normal and eventually i had to become a thermostat i had to say hey i can't do that like i have to set the tone if i don't it's gonna turn me into something I don't want. And the story for that, I was on the rec yard, and there was a gang dispute, and there were these two guys just stomping on somebody's head. Like five minutes of just stomping on his head and laughing. And that was horrifying. And even more horrifying was that my job in prison was to make sure nobody saw it, to make sure no attention got drawn to it. And I was as horrified by what I was expected to do as what they were doing, and I realized if I let that place shape me, it would turn me into something I could never forgive. The other thing I really like about prison was there was a diversity that I wouldn't have had anywhere else. I was exposed to people from different neighborhoods and environments and histories that I never would have seen anywhere else. And that's one of the things that I try to continue. There's a co-working space in my city that I really love. So they have a diversity and equity inclusion program where it's kind of a bougie place, but they make sure that people that make under a certain income can come there. As long as they're doing something in the community, as long as they're engaged, just reach out. And they have an outreach program where they bring people in to make sure there's a diverse environment so different ideas and different perspectives are represented and that's the place that I wanna be. So, once we have a plan, we have to secure funding. For me, it wasn't an angel investor. It was friends and family who believed in me and sent me money so I could go to college and sent me money so I could have food and not scramble and not hustle, who made my life significantly better and who also encouraged me and taught me and guided me. So I had that invest in myself and that taught me that it was okay to invest in myself because from a very young age, I didn't think it was. Like I said, I thought everybody else's needs, was, that was more important. And if I invest in myself, that's selfish. But other people believing in me and encouraging me let me know I could do that. So sometimes we need funding to believe in our own ideas, not just to make them possible. Once we have that, we have to build a team. And this is one of my favorite pictures. So there are a lot of us on social media who've been incarcerated, who tell stories, and we had a get together. We had the crazy idea that let's get together at this random spooky house in Pennsylvania where nobody's ever been before and just hang out. And Vice News came did a documentary And it was one of the most meaningful experiences in my life because I was among peers. I was among people who had been through what I'd been through, who I could make that more of a joke and they understood. Or I could cry and they didn't question it because they remember that feeling. And that was really meaningful and I love those people and I still see them as regularly as I can. The other thing we need on a team though is we need mentors, we need people to guide us and teach us. And I've had that. In prison I found it in really unusual places. I lived with a serial killer who taught me how to shave. Because when I first went to prison, I couldn't grow a beard. Nobody had ever taught me about against the grain and with it. He actually taught me a lot of really important things about ritual and structure and leadership because he was a decorated veteran from Vietnam. He just also killed people. I had a guy named Carl who was also very untraditional and very complicated. And what they taught me was that people aren't just one thing. We want to put somebody in a box or have black or white or really simple answers, but they're a lot more than that. And what Carl did, or his claim to fame, he would teach Shakespeare to GD classes. So people who were often literally illiterate would learn Shakespeare and say, what is this dumb shit? I don't want to do this. But within two weeks, they're on the rec yard arguing about Polonius and like what's going on and how important this is because he told them, he showed them that stories are about people and that this is a story about them just as much as anybody else. And that was one of those revolutionary teaching methods I saw because those kids cared in a way that nobody else I saw. Then there was Bill. He was actually in a slide earlier. Let me see if I can go back up, or I'm on the wrong one. Uh, That's Bill. That's my hero. When my dad died, he came to see me. He was my stepmother's father. And when my dad died, my stepmom stopped having anything to do with me. But he showed up, and he said, you know what? You may have lost your dad, but you're never going to lose me. And he showed me. He came to see me every month. He included me in every community he was in. He talked about me with his friends and family and the people at his church. And he dealt with terrible hardship. He went through one of the worst things anybody can ever go through. And it made him a better person. Rather than becoming jaded and angry, losing his son to suicide somehow made him a deeper, more loving person. And that's the person I want to surround myself with. That's the person I want to be. Then there was Danny, the weird homeless kid with the lazy eye and a bunch of bad tattoos, who they moved me in the cell with, who introduced me to meditation and reintroduced me to martial arts and gave me a book list that was a mile long because he's read every book on that list and every book in the library at 24 years old. And he introduced me to a different idea of myself and potential, and it was like, that was the beginning, that was a catalyst. And when he left, who am I gonna to talk to about meditation? But I had a family friend who had been in a traditional Zen family for 35 years, and I called one day. We had a phone call every day for 15 years. I have to call him on Monday because we still do it. So these were people who taught me. And the process wasn't just teaching and learning and always being the student, but becoming the peer. To call James and not to call him as a student, but call him as a friend. Call as someone where I share my ideas and he shares his, where we co-develop programs, where we have ideas because we're walking the same path. So ultimately, for me, I want to have peers in all my life, people that I learn from and that I learn to be just like them, or at least in their model. So the logistics are an issue, and I actually want to introduce the most important character in this entire slideshow. That's Quinn the dog. He's a rescue dog. What's so neat about Quinn is that we have a program where dogs who've been mistreated or abused are brought to the prison to be trained, but really to acclimate to an environment where they're not being abused, where someone cares for them, so they know how to go home and be with the family. Uh, I love that dog. It took me 12 years of good behavior to be able to be in the pod with that dog. And even then, I couldn't be in the dog program because this program that has all the evidence in the world of changing lives, of reforming people, there are six people in a prison of about 1,150 people that is a quarter of 1% of the population that has access to that program. So if we have all the evidence of how helpful this is, why are our resources allocating it to literally less than 1% of the population? So that's just my criticism. When I looked at the logistics of getting to the honor pod or of moving in life, I realized we have options and we have plans. And the plan one is really easy to explain. Just think about the football player. From a kid, he's gonna be in the NFL. So he plans and he goes and he's good enough and he's strong enough and he goes to high school and he goes to college and then he blows his knee out. Well, what is he gonna do now? He doesn't have a backup plan. He had one plan and he invested in it and he has nowhere to go. But what someone told me is that every choice you have creates more options, creates fewer options. And I recognized I wanna have as many options as possible because I didn't know what my life was gonna look like. I didn't know where I was gonna go or what I was gonna do. So that meant I took as many different jobs as I could. I worked in the law library, I worked in the wood shop, I worked maintenance, I was a tutor, I was a mentor. I volunteered for jobs. I just showed up because I wanted to learn, because I didn't know what my life was gonna be like. I also went to college and got a degree in psychology, but I also got a journeyman's electrical license because I wanted to be able to have a blue collar job if that's what I needed. I didn't know what life was like after prison. I had no idea what to expect. But after the logistics, we need accountability. And in a business, that's just an accountant. That's the guy who says, hey, don't do that. You're probably going to go to jail. I wanted somebody who would hold me accountable. And I have a friend who is another one of my oldest friends. And we've actually become kind of estranged. It breaks my heart. Because I used to call her my caller in chief. Because she would call me on my bullshit, no matter what it was. I was in this weird, toxic, long-distance relationship in this issue. And it was one of those situations where genuinely 99% of the blame was on somebody else and 1% was on me. And I'm telling the story, and I'm angry. And she says, Jesse, stop. You need to apologize. I was like, what? That's, but what? And she said, I don't care about her. I don't care about any of that. I care about you and you're better than that. And that's the kind of friend I want. I want somebody to call me on my BS no matter how small it is. I want somebody to not let me lie to myself because it's really easy to lie to myself. Then we have to build a presence. So when I first went to jail and first went to prison, I was just like everybody else. They didn't trust me. The incarcerated people didn't trust me. The staff didn't trust me and they had no reason to. But when they saw me tutoring people, helping people, all of a sudden I got a little more slack from both sides. And that moment was really simple. It was a guy named Big Baby. He was, if you've ever seen the Green Mile, he looks a lot like John Coffey. Six foot six, 260 pounds. He had this terrible history of violence because he'd grown up in this horrible home and everybody was afraid of him. But he came to me one day and he said, I really want to get my GD. I've been trying for three years. Can you help me? And I said, yeah. But I also said, I want you to teach me how to box, because he was a heavyweight boxing champion. And there were two reasons. First reason was I really wanted to learn how to box. The second reason was somebody had told me early on that some people are uncomfortable with gifts, that some people feel like there has to be a catch, and that if you offer somebody a gift, they're never really gonna take it. But if you ask for something of value in return that doesn't take from them, you're showing them their value. So in this experience, I gained a lot, and he gained a lot, and we both gained as much by giving as receiving. So we sat down for three months, didn't get anywhere. I mean, struggled over the basic equations in algebra, and I just felt hopeless. And then one day he got it. It was like a lightning bolt. And he did it over and over, and I didn't have to explain it, and I was like, oh my god, we got it, this is great. And then the next day we came back, and he lost it again. But he had two choices in that moment. He could have been like, screw this, I'm never going to get it. But what he said was, hey, I got it yesterday. I know I can get it. I can do this again. He knew that he could do this. So he passed his pre-GED or his TABE test or all these things he had to get there. And then I remember the day that he went to take his test and he came back to me, all six foot six, streaming tears, picked me up off the ground and swung me around because he was so happy because he got his GED. And his family hadn't been to see him in three years that he'd been locked up because they didn't have any money. He came from a really rough family, but that was a big enough deal. These people talk about being first generation college. He was one of the first people in his family to graduate from high school or get a GD. And that was a big enough deal that they came to see him. And he came back from that visit with his family in the graduation ceremony, streaming tears and telling me how much it meant. And I knew that's what I want to do. If I can have that effect or have that relationship with people, like that's what I want to do. So then I had a guy come to me, real hillbilly country guy, who actually just got out and I was able to buy him lunch, which I'm glad for, and he said, I want to go to college. Nobody in my family's ever gone to college. I don't, I don't think I can do this. I didn't have any money. So I said, well, how about this? Let's get you some books, and let's go through college as a mock experience. Let's get you an education, whether it's on paper or not, let's show you. And at first, he couldn't write. He couldn't write a sentence. He couldn't build a paragraph. But he got better, just like Big Baby. He got better and better and better. And all of a sudden, he was like, man, maybe I can do this. Like, maybe I can go to college. Maybe I can go to law school. Maybe I can get an MBA. And it was that experience where he shifted his perspective. He learned his potential that he wouldn't have learned if nobody had ever believed in it. Then we had a... There was a major drug problem in the prison. You could get anything you wanted. I never shot heroin until I went to prison, to give you an example. Um, And people were really losing it. And one guy came to me and said, look, everywhere I go, I get drugs. I try to tell people I want to stop and I go to the chow hole and they put it in my hand. I get in trouble and I go to the hole and they put it in my hand. Where can I go? And so we went to the psych and we said, hey, can we have a pod for people who actually want to change? We need some way for them to have a place that's away. And they didn't approve that and went through this bureaucratic cycle and we ended up with a peer support mental health program because they weren't willing to admit that they had a drug problem but they were willing to admit that we had a mental health problem and they didn't have the resources to address it. So they trained a bunch of us to be the intermediaries. We taught classes, we mentored people directly And we had a relationship where we also acted as kind of the gatekeeper to the psych person. Because 95% of the time, the person who was acting up just wanted to be seen and listened to and validated. And if we did that, that calmed them down and allowed them to get back to peeling or drawing or whatever they were doing. And that was a really meaningful role because I got to see that impact in people's lives over and over. So, once we have a presence, we have to build connections. And for me, that was writing. I was writing both letters and writing essays. There was a woman who worked in the same office as my mom, who wrote me in Christmas of 2005, maybe, um, who wrote me this letter I wasn't really impressed with. And I wrote her back and was like, hey. I can't remember what I said, but it was like some kind of criticism. And then she wrote me back, and then I wrote her back. We wrote each other a letter every week for 16 years. I learned about everyone in her family. I learned about her kids, and her grandkids, and her husband, and everybody. And then I got to meet her one day, which was really nice. I got to write essays. And I had the Marshall Project publish one of my essays in months to years. And these different groups said, hey, you're good enough. Like Your words are important enough to share with the world. And that meant a lot to me. I got to share myself. Because being in prison feels like being locked away from the world. Like the walls aren't just there to keep us in. They're there to keep other people out. So feeling like I could reach beyond those walls meant a lot to me. And learning about connections taught me about the importance of social capital. So the nonprofit that I run, the seed funding from that came from a conversation at a party where I talked to somebody, told him what I was passionate about, he looked at my social media, and the next day he agreed to donate a ridiculous amount of money. I could have done the most impressive presentation in any other party in the country. I wouldn't have gotten that money. I didn't even ask for the money. I was in the right room. And that's where I realized with connections, being around the right people is often far more important than having the right message, because that's what makes the difference. But if we have a business or a family, we have to be willing to adapt. Does anybody bank with SVB? (laughs) So there were two people that I talked to on the way here who banked with SVB. One of them didn't know where they were going to stay because their credit cards were frozen. The other person didn't know how they were going to pay their payroll and cried half the way here on the plane. But the first person found a place to stay and the second person paid their payroll because they figured out how to adapt. They figured out how to accept uncomfortable things and not be angry, not be focused, but work on a change. So in 2019, Having been a part of starting this mental health program, having gotten my college degree, having become a licensed electrician, I decided to take a long shot. To give you an example, in 2014, I think the previous governor pardoned 43 people, and these were simple pardons, where he was just clearing their record. Out of 25,000 people in the prison system. Not a very likely thing, just to get your record cleared. But I put in a petition for clemency, because what somebody had told me was, the important thing is not the outcome, but doing the next right thing. And if I do the next right thing, I can't control the outcome, but I can feel good about what I'm doing. So that was my investment in myself, believing, you know what, it probably won't work, but I'm gonna put it in and I'm gonna say, hey, I've completed more than the high point of the sentencing guidelines called for. I've gotten a college degree, I've started this program, I've been involved in these things. Like, I'm asking for mercy. I then worked my way to the honor pod, where you met Mr. Quinn earlier, who's my favorite dog. Um, And that took, like I said, 12 years without a charge, 12 years of having a job, 12 years of doing the right thing to get there. And that was a good change. That was a change I was ready for, because it's really nice to have a single cell and not be surrounded by people, have a little back patio I could go out on. It's good. Then COVID hit. All of a sudden we're locked in the cell for two months. At least I was in there alone, but for the first time I missed having a cell partner, because I was by myself. Every cell that was a single cell had become solitary. And then we adapted, you know, I had still been teaching classes. I was teaching Spanish. I was teaching nonviolent communication. I was doing these things that I thought were really important, but I couldn't do them because of COVID, but we had a psychologist who ran the program and decided to make a change. Said, Hey, whether doing it in person, why don't you make videos? We can share the videos all over the state. So I got to be a social media star before I got out of prison. (laughs) So I did that and I was able to do it. And it was this really meaningful life. It meant the world to me. And then they had this call. Nobody had cared about ventilation or safety standards up to this point, but COVID had this renewed interest in ventilation. We have to check standards, and we'd been in violation for years. So they said, well, we're going to fine you or shut the prison down unless you fix this. So to do that, they had to clear enough people out to gut everything and do it. So they picked 64 names out of a hat, and I wasn't on that list, thankfully. And they were going to send these people somewhere else. And then the day before, somebody had a medical emergency, and they had to pick one more name out of the hat, and that was me. And so I went from the single cell where I get to play with Quinn every day, got to make these videos, I got to have this really, like if you gotta be in prison, that was the place to be. And I got shipped to an open dormitory, which is 82 bunks stacked on top of each other. No privacy, no space. The toilets line up to where you're touching knees with somebody when you're using the bathroom. The shower heads are lined up to where you're crammed in there like sardines. And that was my life. And I was angry, and I was hurt, and I was a lot of things. But I had somebody very important to me tell me that my job is to write the story, that I can't control the characters or the setting, but I can write the story. So that's what I tried to do. I said, OK, well, maybe I can teach Spanish classes here. Like, what are they going to do? And they actually tried to shut us down. They said, we're not allowed, per COVID regulations, to congregate around a table while we are stacked six deep on top of each other. <laughs> and I was like, if you just give me a charge, I'm going to take it. Like, at this point, it really doesn't matter. But I found a way to make it meaningful. Found a way to teach classes. I finally got a job. I was able to do that, and I was able to adapt. And I thought that was going to be it. Then on August 16th of 2021, I got up. I made my cup of coffee. I went, I got on the phone. I went to work. And at two o'clock, they called me in the office. And somebody on the speaker phone said, Mr. Cross, are you sitting down? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Why? And he said, well, because you're getting out of prison today. So I kind of hit a knee and I teared up. And the pardon that I had put in for two years earlier came through. So in an hour and a half, I had to scramble and run around and go. And I didn't really believe it. I thought this was a lie or they made a mistake. And then I walked out the front and I saw my mother for the first time in a year and a half because there had been no visits during COVID. And I was able to give her a hug and I picked her up. And I was so excited. And she whispered in my ear, Jesse, let's get the F out of (laughs) here. Yeah, good point. And I'd been preparing for this for a long time. I still thought I had 10 years left, but I'd been in therapy, I'd been reading every self-help book, I'd been reading parenting books, I'd been reading everything I could do to try to prepare myself, but it wasn't enough, because there is no preparing for that. So I went into Costco and I had a panic attack, because it was too many people and too much space and too many choices and I couldn't do it. And I spent plenty of time, bald in a fetal position, just crying and unable to adapt. But the same love and support I had while I was in prison, I had out here. So I had a chance. I had people believe in me and support me and encourage me. And One of those things was uh, somebody told me I needed to share my story and make videos. So I did. I had this plan that I was going like, to let go of all this trauma. It's going to be really easy. So I was going to go to the top of a mountain. I was going to eat Chinese food. And I was going to scream and cry. And everything would be better. Uh, well, it wasn't. But I did that. And I made a video. And I talked about it. And then when I got home that night, I called that friend and I said, hey, how many views is normal? Is 10,000 views normal? And she was like, no, Jesse, it's not. And what I found was that people were interested. They were interested in something honest and real. They wanted to know what happened behind the walls. There were all kinds of things about violence. But I think people want a human story. So I started to share that. I started to share videos about my life and answer questions. And then I started speaking at high schools and colleges. And then I was on TV. And then I started a nonprofit. But I never imagined. And so when I talk about the value of change, 19 months to go to the day I was in prison. And 19 months later, I'm on stage at South by Southwest. Like, that's not normal. (laughs) So with all of those bizarre developments, what does success look like? We start a business or start a family because we're going to constantly move the goalposts because we have to adapt. So I've dealt with scarcity. I've dealt with stacking as many soaps in my locker because I don't know whether they're going to stop commissary and I'm going to run out. I've dealt with not knowing whether there's going to be enough on the table. And so I struggle with that. So I always thought success was going to be having enough. And then I thought success was going to be getting out of prison. And then I thought success would be doing a great job with the nonprofit. I don't know. I don't think any of that works because I think all that moves, the goalposts aren't really set. So I had a conversation with somebody I really admire who said, I need to rethink my definition of success. So when I look at my life, the question is, am I living according to the values that I wanna have? Am I living the life that I wanna have? So today, my idea of success is looking in the mirror and realizing that I am proud of myself for the first time. Thank you. for questions if anyone's interested, or we have plant questions on the thing if you guys don't want.
1: Sure. Um, Social media today is just, there's a lot of positivity, but there's also a lot of negativity and hatred. Um, What are some tips or some habits that you personally uh, utilize in your daily activities or whatever in terms of dealing with some of
0: nasty comments on hatred that you may possibly get. Okay. Do you want to repeat that? Or? Test.
1: Okay. Um, so it, social media is, is, it can be a very toxic environment today, right? It can have a lot of positivity, but there's also a lot of toxicity. Um, and so people are so quick to hop on the hatred bandwagon. Um, what are some tips or habits that you have in your daily routines in terms of keeping a good mental health with that toxicity online?
0: Sure. Um, well, the first thing I found is the importance of taking care of myself first. So every morning I get up and I do a gratitude list. Like, and I did this when I was in the hole in prison. I would find something to be grateful for. I would try to find five things. And What I found is that if I did that enough, wherever I was and whatever I had was enough. And starting from that kind of balanced place, I was OK. What I recognize with other people is the the old line that hurt people hurt people. So when someone reaches out and says something nasty about me, that's about them, and that's not about me. I don't always feel that. There are definitely times that I get hurt, or I get angry, or I start to question myself, and it really depends on how much sleep I get, how well resourced I am, like how balanced I am. And if I'm in a good place, I can see that and really hope that that person gets a hug, or gets some love, or has some healing. Otherwise, I might get mad, or I might just delete the comment and go, I don't know, eat some Oreos, because I still have that habit. Generally what I found is learning to take care of myself and accept what's mine, and take ownership over what's mine, good or bad, and then let other people have their stuff and not take that on too. So, sorry. So prison is the one that we most associate with being institutionalized, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of institutions, the military, corporations, academia, What's your advice to someone who is leaving one institution and is going to have to prepare themselves to go into a new institution or not immediately go even into an institution anymore and find their own way? That's a great question. Uh, One of the things that surprised me most about um, social media and the the reactions I got. I expected to get reactions from people who'd been harmed, from law enforcement, from people who had family members locked up. I have so many people that were in the military that say, hey, why is my experience so much like yours? Like, why is our experience exactly the same? And it goes back to Foucault and the institution thing. And so I give them the same advice that I give people getting out of prison. <laughs> Don't try to do too much too fast, because there's this desire to go and like, take on the world and do everything and make up for lost time, and all we do is burn out. And that's why my buddy who got out, the one I took through the mock College, he was telling me how great it was and posting pictures at 3 a.m. and seizing the day, and I was like, bro, slow down. It's, it's, it's going to crash, and it did. Um, so starting slow, but I think it's really important to orient ourselves to a new environment. When I was at the XR exhibit, we were talking about that. How helpful it would be to have people literally just be in a new space or have a different experience. Because it's so dramatically different to go from stark white concrete walls to the world. And a tree, I didn't see a tree. I was not in the proximity of tree for almost 20 years. I literally went up and hugged a tree. Like, I needed to do that. And I think letting people know that that's okay, letting people know that that's normal, letting people know that it's gonna be a struggle, that you're gonna be in the fetal position crying, whatever institution you're getting out of, but then having that support. Because for me, it's really about those people on that slide earlier who I'm going to see in June, who I saw in January, people who understand my experience and I understand theirs. There's no question. Finding peers in the world and people who've been through that really helps. So getting out of the military, going to a VFW can make the world a difference. Getting out of prison, finding an ex-con happy hour, it makes a world of difference. Finding people that understand that experience really helped me. Thank you. If nobody else has a question, I, I got one for you. Uh, Sorry, so, would you say that there are, I, I mean, would you see that institutionalization and in the the departure from it as having parallels to other things? Like, you know, for example, um, somebody who's long term with a company or failure of a company or all of those things? Or is it exclusive to being incarcerated and released? No, I mean, just like with the military, I think, again, if you read Foucault's work on institutions, he says an institution is an institution is an institution. Whether it's our schools or our military or our prison or our corporate structure, those institutions shape our lives in such fundamental ways that to be without that structure is incredibly problematic. So like I was saying earlier, and I should have addressed this probably more specifically, creating structure in my life where it's not, like just waking up and having freedom is really overwhelming. And often i found that having structure and having limitations is actually the most freeing thing. Um, so yeah, I think the parallels are incredible. And I think it's really important to figure out how we're gonna create a new structure that meets our needs in whatever new environment, whether we're going into or leaving out of an institution. Hey, Jesse. Hi, Christy. <laughs> There's probably a lot of business owners in this room, sure. so I wanted to address any advice you might have for a business owner looking to integrate more Um, formerly incarcerated people into their workforce. Thank you. Um, Yeah, we had, there was a great panel earlier this week talking about the effect of college education on post-incarceration. And one of the things we found is we have this fear that well, we can't hire somebody who's been convicted of a crime because they're a greater threat. The evidence really isn't there. In fact, what I've found, uh, let me give you a story because I feel like stories are often more important. The secretary, excuse me, the treasurer on my board was incarcerated basically most of his youth got out at 21, the only place that would give him a job was a hardware store. They didn't want to deal with him. They didn't want his, his type. So he worked there for five years. He became a manager. He was designing programs, but he couldn't get promoted. They just wouldn't give him a chance. So finally, somebody said, hey, why don't you go to college? Nobody had ever told him that before. Nobody had ever given him that idea. So he went home, and he Googled, what is the highest paying job in the world? Then he Googled, how do I become a hedge fund manager? <laughs> and it said, get a finance degree. So four years later, he graduated with a finance degree and went to work for a Fortune 50 company and was one of their star employees presenting to the CEO. That was the drive and the interest and the dedication and the appreciation of someone who's come out of incarceration. We had a guy through the program that he used to work with who got a job at a tire shop. He had the opportunity to go to Harvard and he didn't want to leave because the tire shop had given him a chance and he couldn't possibly abandon them. Do you have any employees that are that loyal? Like, that's a loyalty you can't imagine. So what I've actually found, and what the evidence seems to support, is that getting someone who has done the work, and made the changes, and built the skills, or is willing to build the skills, you're going to get a better employee than you will in most cases. And there's an alliance of second-chance employers you can look at. Dave SkillerBred has a foundation that talks about training around hiring second-chance employment. Uh, There are a lot of resources out there, and if anybody's interested, I'm happy to connect you with some when we get done. Thank you.
1: Hey, um, this is more of like a mental health um, support of loved ones question. Um, Five out of six of my immediate family members have been in and out of the prison system for a collective almost 30 years, anywhere from two to ten years at a time. Um, And I say this with zero judgment. I just, in my immediate surroundings, I've never known anybody that was able to truly like be reformed and like stay the narrow path. It's like five, six years, oh my God, and then something happens. Um, So I'm wondering, like, obviously yourself, you're new on this journey, and then um, your friend group maybe, and your time in there. Is there anything that you could offer as advice, not only to folks that are struggling to believe in themselves after, you know, not (laughs) succeeding the first few tries, but also for those of us that love incarcerated people, um, and it's exhausting to get your hopes up and then, you know... But you don't want to be judgmental or give up. But it's like, what the hell do you do 30 sure. years
0: down the road? So
1: any advice?
0: Um, so for the family member, because I, I get this question a lot on social media, I always say you have to take care of yourself first. Whether you're going to support that person, you're going to create boundaries, you can't do that unless you take care of yourself. So that's always the first thing. Um, the second thing is, for that person, I've found that I am generally, uh, combination of the five closest people to me. So if I don't change those environments and those people, I'm not going to change. And a big part of my journey has been finding new people, but it's also been cutting out old people from my life, or loving them, but loving them from a distance. Because there are people on the inside and on the outside who I love to death, but I won't be around them. I have to have that distance. And unless I'm willing to do that, I'm not investing in myself, and I don't expect anybody else to invest in me. And you know, I, I have a close friend whose brother It's that, in and out, back and forth. And so what she says is, hey, I love you, but I love you from over here. And if you want help changing, if you want help with resources, if you want to go to rehab, I will gladly help you with that. But I can't do anything else. And I think that's a really harsh thing to do. But in some cases, tough love is the only love that'll really help get people to where they need to be. Um,
1: Yeah. Hey, Jesse. Great talk, really inspiring. And thanks for sharing your story. Uh, My question is. How does adversity lead to success?
0: So I don't think there's anyone I know who's really successful who hasn't had some major challenges in their life. I don't know anybody, because the people I know who didn't have any challenges and didn't have any struggle or strife, the first time they hit a wall, they fall down, and they give up, or they take their ball and go home. What I found is that success is a habit of going through adversity and finding hope and finding ways to move forward even when it's difficult. Uh, And I found that the people who I want to be around are the people who have done that over and over until it's habitual, until it's who they are. And that's what I'm trying to do. So every time I slip and I do less than I can do, I want somebody to hold me accountable and lift me up and hold me to a higher standard. And I want to be that person to those around me. Um, And I think that adversity really, it, it either breaks us or it brings out the best in us. And so success is those people who allow it to bring out the best in them.
1: Like that. Thank you.
0: Hey, Jesse. Uh, Astonishing story. I mean, incredible. My question for you is around actually twofold it's around forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the first part. I'm just curious how you work through your own self-forgiveness and then that of your victim. And then the second is um, around legacy, when you think about your life and how you want to be remembered. I'm just curious what your thoughts are there. Sure. Um, Well, I'll address self-forgiveness first. I hated myself for most of my life because I wasn't strong enough or smart enough or good enough or because of the harm that I'd done. I carried that with me for a long time. And I carried a lot of guilt from the things that I had done. Um, And I struggled. I didn't know how to forgive myself. But what I realized was that, again, it's not an act. It's not a single moment. It's a series of choices over and over and over. So I had to address those issues in my life that led me to be the person that I was. I had to make changes. And as I made those changes little by little, I found that I was becoming a different person. And there was a point at which I woke up and I realized I have lived this long enough that this is, I'm not that person. I am now somebody different. And I can let go of what was weighing me down and defining me and driving me kind of into that darkness because I've done the work and I'm no longer that person. As far as another person's forgiveness, I can't do that. Uh, and I don't expect to do that. It's not my right, it's someone else's choice. Um, in my case, and this is one of the interesting things, uh, restorative justice or radical justice or a bunch of different approaches, but are about saying we need to address the harm that's been done and we need to heal. The way the system is set up now, I can't contact any of the people that I've harmed. They could initiate contact, they could do that, and that would be up to them. But what we found is with the restorative justice process where we bring in the person who has caused the harm, the person who was harmed, and some element of the community, and we have them in a room to address the harm that was done, to provide the healing, there's a much higher satisfaction rate for everyone involved. And there's a much lower recidivism rate. But we don't do that. We focus on punishment. We say, hey, we know you were hurt, but like, we don't really care about you. We're going to be over here punishing this guy, because this is what's important, which doesn't help anybody. It doesn't make this person less likely to reoffend. It doesn't give this person the healing they need. So. Ultimately, I feel like our system is very ill designed to address the needs of the person who was harmed or the victim of my crime specifically. Uh, and I would like to work to change that. There's a local restorative justice panel in my city and I love the work they're doing because they started out saying, hey, we'll do like petty theft. And then somebody came to and said, hey, we've got this really serious sexual assault. Would you take this? They were like, whoa, well, well, we don't know. Like that's, that's a big issue. It worked out better than it would have. The person said, hey, this is what I needed. Like that gave me what I needed. So what we found is that it can be successful in a lot of different situations and it can be applied in communities where people don't trust the police because they have a referral process that isn't traditional. You don't have to call and get somebody arrested. You can come and say, hey, this happened, and I want accountability, and I want healing, and they can adopt that case without ever involving the court system, without ever involving the police, and it works better. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, so the second part was just about your legacy. How you oh, uh, I'm 38 years old, so I don't think I'm old enough to have a legacy. Um, if I could, I mean, I, I think I have this on my Facebook page. If I can pack everything possible into the stream of life, and I can leave the world a little bit better than I found it, that would be the only thing I would want to do. I don't care what that looks like. I just want to make people smile, I want to give people hope, I want to make people happy. And if I can leave any bit of that feeling with somebody, I want that to be my legacy.
1: Hi, Jesse. My name is Laura. Thank you so much for being here and um, inspiring all of us. Um, it sounds like you read a lot um, over the years. Uh, so curious if you could recommend one book or maybe two for just anyone to read.
0: Um, sure. Um, maybe. Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock is probably the best, most transformative book. Um, I'm trying to think. It really depends on the, the area. Uh, I'm a very like poetry kind of person. Uh, if somebody just tells me an instruction, it doesn't mean anything to me. But if somebody tells me a story, if somebody writes poetry, so like Rumi, like in many ways, the, the life that I try to live is The Guest House by Rumi, where he says, let it all in, like the anger, the joy, let it just destroy the house, wreck and wreak havoc. Um, Anti Fragile by Nicholas Taleb, which is weirdly you know, not what most people would think, because I'm not really an economics person. Um, I don't know. There have been a lot. It's, it's hard to weigh down. I actually, I think I have a whole list on my, my website, so when we get done, let me pull up my website, and I'll, I'll tell you, because I can't think of it right now. But, all right. Well, we're out of time. Thank you all for being here.